We are finishing a five-week series called Better Decisions, uh, Fewer Regrets. And it's the idea of that we want to make better decisions so we have fewer regrets. And what we did is we set up five questions that help us make better decisions for fewer regrets. Okay, so here's the list of the four questions that uh, we had uh, from the previous uh, weeks. Uh, can you use the other background? There we go. Uh, number one is the integrity question. This question is, am I being honest with myself, really? And whenever we ask this question, I'm being honest with myself, it may bring up things that we need to be honest about in ourselves. Number two was the legacy question. What story do I want to tell? And basically, we use this question when it's like we might be making a bad decision. <laughs> like, what story do I want to tell to my friends and my family or my, the next generation? The third question was the conscience question, which is there a tension that deserves my attention? And this has to do with like, do I feel something really inside that's causing me to pause? And then the last question we talked about last week is the maturity question. What is the wise thing to do? And this was a really exciting question because sometimes we go, is it the right or the wrong thing to do? But sometimes the right and wrong, how close can I get to the edge of right and wrong is the wrong question. Sometimes the right question is, what is the wise thing to do in a particular situation? And this leads us to today's fifth question, the final question, and it is the relationship question. If you're taking notes, which I see all of you totally are, uh, the relationship question is, what does love require of me? So let me begin with the story. And I've talked about this before. Levi was one of Jesus' disciples, and he was a tax collector. Later on, Levi's name became Matthew. And sometimes tax collectors were called tax farmers. And I can bet you can guess why. And as the story goes, Matthew, or Levi, was hated because he was Jewish, and he made a living, and most likely a lucrative living, by working for the oppressor. He was Jewish, he worked for the Roman government, and he oppressed the Jewish people by charging them an, an exorbitant amount for their taxes, more than he was supposed to. And so, in the life of times of Jesus, we see that Jesus eats with people like tax farmers, and he eats with sex workers, and in doing so, he's raising the horizon of possibility over their lives. He's inviting them into a new future, a new family, and a new reality. And when we hear this story about Jesus, oh, he's with tax farmers, he's with sex workers, we go, oh, that is so cool. That is so cool. I'm so glad that he would do that. But we need to stop for a minute. Because what we think is cute and what we think is cool uh, is, is different compared to what they experience because we live in a country that has a high comfortability with higher taxes and we live in a city that has no boundaries sexually. And so we need to imagine, we, don't, we can't imagine sexually free people here and we can't imagine people that are like, yeah, let's raise taxes. We need to stop and imagine a completely different group of people if we really want to understand what Jesus was doing. You need to stop and imagine whoever your deplorables are to borrow from a famous politician from a few years ago. Famous politician said, you know, they're deplorables. <laughs> Some of you know who I'm referring to. And so I put it up here on the screen. Who is your deplorable? Who's the kind of person 
that if they didn't exist, you believe that the world would just be a better place. I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine the people in our country that you just think are the worst. Do you have them in mind? Okay, well, uh, just to be sure, I'm going to give you a few examples of who your deplorable might be. And if it makes you feel uncomfortable, good, then I've done my job because that's exactly what deplorables do. They make you feel uncomfortable. They make you mad. They frustrate you. So I'm going to give you a few examples. I want to see how this, uh, how this sits with you. West Los Angeles residents during the pandemic. What did you say about people from Florida during the pandemic? <laughs> what did you say privately about anti-maskers during the height of the unknown? Your deplorable might have been somebody who you believed was hurting somebody else. That's just an opener. Let's wade into deeper waters. Abortion. If you are pro-life, your deplorable might be somebody who supports partial birth abortions. If you are pro-choice, your deplorable might be a man who refuses to acknowledge a woman's right to choose under any circumstances. Let's do another one. Gender. If you believe that gender is more fluid and there's many variations to the binary approach of men and women, your deplorable might be someone who believes that there's only two genders. And if you're the kind of person that gets completely turned off at a party because someone's going on and on at the party about transgender rights of children, your deplorable might be someone who is a transgender advocate for that, for children. Let's do another one. Sexuality. If you believe that people are born gay and God made it that way, your deplorable might be someone who believes that being gay is a choice. You may see that person as a bigot or a homophobe. Now, if you believe that human sexuality is subject to your historical reading of the scriptures, your deplorable might be someone who is actively calling you homophobic. Let's talk about race. Why not while we're at it? I mean, if you believe that white supremacy is the root cause of systemic injustices that we're experiencing in our world, your deplorable might be someone that, eject, that rejects whiteness as the cause of racism, and you might call them a racist for it. Uh, if you believe that, if you believe that a it's more of a question about personal responsibility, and that's correlated to one's life circumstances, your deplorable might be someone who's calling you a racist for not supporting their point of view. Should I keep going, or is that enough? Have we had enough? Maybe those aren't your hot-button issues. Maybe those aren't your deplorables. But you need to think about who you find to be deplorable, okay? And you, now that you've imagined that, when we need to see Jesus, when we would imagine Jesus in these situations, Jesus would eat, eat with people just like that. And for those of you, this is the 21st century Los Angeles equivalent of the story I'm telling you right now. When Jesus did stuff like this, when he ate with tax collectors and sinners and sex workers, this was not cute. People were not into it. They weren't like, oh, this is cute. It was not sentimental. It was not compelling for people on the outside. 
It was of not something that people loved seeing him doing. People thought what Jesus was doing was offensive. You need to stop and think for a minute. Jesus got himself killed for who he ate dinner with. Now back to the story. I mentioned Levi the tax farmer. There's another person in the story I want to mention. His name is Simon. And now there's two Simons on Jesus' 12-person team, which became 11, okay? Uh, there was Simon, known as Simon Peter, and that's the one that everyone knows all the stories about. Oh, Simon, he's not a very fast runner. Uh, he's always getting in trouble with Jesus, all the things. But there was another Simon, and his name was Simon the Zealot. And before Simon the Zealot became an apostle of Jesus, Simon was, in fact, you guessed it, a zealot. And this is wild. Zealots, and you probably know this, but let me just refresh your memory. Zealots were a part of a first-century insurgency group to the far right. Zealots were Jewish nationalists who used guerrilla tactics against Rome. And uh, they were also, there was this reference for them, they used to be called Sakari or Sakari men. And Sakari is an Aramaic word which means dagger men. And what they would do is they would hide a dagger underneath their tunic or their robe. And what they would do is they would infiltrate into the middle of a crowd and they would come up behind a Roman soldier or oftentimes just a Jewish person, one of their fellow countrymen who was a Roman supporter. They would sneak up behind him in the middle of the crowd. It doesn't matter if they were a man, woman, or child. They would sneak behind him with their dagger. They would slit their throat right in the middle of the crowd. Didn't matter. And then they would disappear into the crowd. What Simon the Zealot was a part of was domestic terrorism. And what we see, and what we see is that Jesus brings Levi the tax farmer and Simon the zealot together. He brings them in on the same team. He invites them to break bread together, to do ministry together, to heal the sick together, to put one's needs above their own. And at the nightly dinner table uh, with Jesus, after they'd have a long day of ministry, they would gather probably to eat something. And at the dinner table, there'd be the 12 disciples. You can imagine that Simon the tax farmer, oh no, excuse me, Levi the tax farmer and Simon the zealot exchanged words. And when they exchanged words, it was not some cute version of some weird debate between Rachel Maddow and Tucker Carlson. This wasn't something cute like watching a YouTube video of the Antifa versus the Proud Boys at some, at some uh, protest. When Jesus Jesus brought these two people together. It was the equivalent of bringing the Al-Qaeda and the Navy SEALs under one table, under one roof. These were both disciples who had lost people. Both had buried loved ones. Violence was assumed between these two people. These are enemies. Real enemies. And they're two of the founding Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ. What happened to their politics? We don't know. We don't even know that Jesus thought about much about the Roman Empire. He thought that there was another king and we belong to another kingdom. He was very clear about the kingdom of God, which is more a sociopolitical statement more than it's anything else. But most scholars agree that Jesus was deliberately and provocatively silent regarding the raging political issues of his day, and that his silence was a greater statement than anything he could have said. And we don't know what happened to their politics. We don't know what happened to their political views. All we know 
is that these two former enemies became brothers in the family of God, following the nonviolent, the loving, compassionate, and suffering way of Jesus. You see, this is what Jesus does. This is the power of the resurrection. How did this happen? Well, obviously it happened through his death and his resurrection. But also, we get this other story. And that leads us to the passage that was read by Ingrid. Get this. So you've got Simon the zealot. You've got Levi the tax farmer. You've got Peter, James, and John, Thomas, don't forget Judas, and then Judas Iscariot, and then the other ones I'm forgetting right now. It's the Last Supper, right? And they're all sitting around the table. Jesus knows that he's about to die. They don't know it. They don't believe it. And he spent the last three years teaching and leading these people, these 12 people. But before he gets arrested at the dinner table, he says this really interesting thing. He says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Sounds pretty good, right? Amen. And if you're listening right now, you're like, yeah, I'm in. Love one another. But here's the catch. Jesus does not say that you get to decide how you want to love one another. Jesus doesn't even say that you get to decide when you want to love one another. And if you look closely, you see something that is far more difficult. Jesus says, everyone you will know my disciples, if you love each other in the way that I have loved you. Jesus says that you have to love one another. But not in your own way. Not in a way that's convenient for you. Not in a way that makes you feel good or contributes to your friendships that you feel comfortable with. Not in a way that disregards your deplorable. What's he actually saying here? He's saying, you got to love people like I loved you. And how did he do that? He says, I gave myself up for you. I was a servant. I cared for you when I was smart and when you were stupid. When I knew I was right and you didn't know you weren't right. When I knew what was wrong and you didn't know what was wrong, I suffered for you. I served you. I loved you. And here's my command to you now. Love one another in the same way that I've loved you. So what does love require of us today? Well, if we follow the command of Jesus to love others in the same way that Jesus has loved us. This means that we're kind to people in our life. Even, it means we're kind to them instead of reminding them of their weaknesses. It means we celebrate the success of others. We're not threatened by other people's success. You know, loving someone in your life the way Jesus loved you means that you never try to disgrace them. 
You never try to shame them. And I'm pretty sure it means that we don't try to cancel people. Or we don't participate in a culture that seeks to cancel other people. You know, love puts the interests and needs of others above their own. Love means that when we get angry with somebody, we go to that person one-on-one and we begin to address it with that person, how we feel, instead of talking to everybody else about it first. Love says that we must forgive. And love says, and he says in an interesting, you know, Paul the Apostle talks about, he says that love keeps no record of wrongs. And the funny thing about record keepers is that they generally don't keep good track of their own records. You know? Do you enjoy watching your spouse or your roommates mess up? That's messed up. And to put it frankly, keeping a record of wrongs is a power play. And when someone holds your past over you, who has the power in that situation? Certainly not you. It's the other person. See, love is not about powering up. It's about powering down. And love, love even requires us not to make meaning of what other people are saying, even if it confuses us or it hurts us or when they say something that we straight disagree with. You know, love chooses uh, to lean into a generous explanation when others don't meet our expectations. So let me ask you a personal question right now. What does love require of you right now? It may require you to get up out of your seat Walk right out of this church, walk right into that relationship, and you might need to apologize. And it's not the kind of apology where you say, I'm sorry, now it's your turn to say sorry, but you just go apologize. Love may require you to pick up the phone and rebuild the bridge that you burned with your amazing logic or your sharp sarcasm. I get it, we get it, you get it, we all get it. You were right in the moment. But being right wasn't what was required of you at the time. You may need to write a letter. You may need to rewrite an email. Uh, You may need to invite someone over for coffee and have a really serious conversation. And just to forewarn you, the other person may not be interested in what love requires of you. And just to be clear, the other person may not be interested in what love requires of them either. This is a warning. This is the only question of the five questions that has a no no guaranteed return on investment. The other four were, if you do this, you will make better decisions. Now this one, what does love require of me, isn't about you, it's about the other person. So you may not get 